love horses and books? Welcome to HN Reads, the podcast where we track down the latest in equestrian lit and chat with the authors that penned them, exclusively on Horse Network. Welcome to HN Reads. I'm Gretchen Lida. This is the first podcast that we are doing here at HN Reads, and I am so excited for all the fantastic interviews that you get to hear. This first guest really helped me think more about how to be consistent and self-aware with both horses and in some ways with people. Her name is Andrea Kutch. She is a horse trainer, author, and CEO of Andrea Kutch Academy. She created a training method called Evidence-Based Equine Communication, which teaches us more scientifically how horses think and how we can use that in our training. Her new book, Out Now, From the Horse's Point of View, Beyond Natural Horsemanship, Horse Training's New Frontier, is ready for you to get. Thank you so much for being here, Andrea. Well, thank you so much. I'm so excited. Thanks for having me. So the first question that I had is, um, can you tell me what EBEC stands for and what it is? Yeah, EBEC stands for Evidence-Based Equine Communication. So um, when when I learned a long time ago, already like 1999, um, about natural horsemanship and and horse whispering, that's all popped up and was so popular. Um, we were all interested in like how to improve our communication with horses. And um, after I studied with a lot of people and looked at a ton of horses and see how they are trained, um, I was thinking, okay, we should maybe find some evidence if this is really the best way to communicate with horses. But that's why it's called evidence-based equine communication, because the first thing we looked at was like, how can we communicate the best with horses? So that was my main scientific interest to find out, um, is the horse stressed when we send it in circles? What do certain gestures mean? Um, What's the horse telling us? How fast do they understand when we work with certain negative reinforcement, positive reinforcement, all these, these things? And the basis before you really can use learning theories is you have to find a way how to communicate with one another. And so that's why this was so important. So I made a ton of studies about the the communication between human and horse and what works and what doesn't work, what they understand, what they do not understand that well, what's stressing them, what's not stressing them. And um, and that was really interesting. So that's why that has that name and it's globally known as EBEC. Fantastic. Um, so the stress is talked about a lot within your book and it's a really, really important concept. However, it's one of those words that especially here in the States, we use it super vaguely. Um, often, you know, stress can be a stress fracture or it can be, you know, you got a parking ticket. Um, so how would you define stress um, generally or for horses? Yeah, for horses, it's very important that um, it's we, we shouldn't be too much anti-stress. It's you need, when you're, you get out of your comfort zone, your system human and horse is looking at something new, something unfamiliar. And that means your body is in a certain alarm 
situation, like going, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. And um, so let's be careful. So that's your system is doing this. The hormones are going crazy. And then it depends like how far do you push yourself out of your comfort zone that you then start producing the, so those hormones or those stress moments are healthy because that means you're learning. And that's the same for the horse. But there's a certain level when you push yourself too much out of that, and then you produce adrenaline, cortisol, and then you might this might block your um, capability of positive learning. And then everything what the human would do with the with the horse when this um, happens, that means um, that destroys your learning content. Because then you are, as a trainer, not really um, in charge anymore what the message is going to be the horse will store in their brain. And um, so, therefore, we have to divide it into a little bit of stress is necessary in order to learn, but you need to kind of know when you overdo it and when it becomes unhealthy or when it's like not helping you at all anymore. And um, when we... When we um, cross that boundary in science and we found out like that we can see certain signals in the body language of the horse. Let's say natural horsemanship people very often go for they want to um, see licking and chewing in a horse, for example, that would be a certain gesture. Um, they show this after they had stress. So when they relax again, and that means before it was a little too much stress, maybe because they were just at this boundary that they were like, oh my God, I was holding my breath. I didn't have saliva in my mouth anymore. I was like, so like hoping everything goes well. And that means that was a little bit too much because one of our biggest questions in science was like, how can we teach people to neutrally see this in the horse? Like that they don't go, oh, you know, um, um, oh, I, from my perspective, I don't want this. This is stress for my horse. And I don't want you to do this because this is stressing my horse. So, and then this other person who's maybe much more around stressed horses would go like, no, this is not stress. If you want to see how I stress this horse, I can put it up a notch. So we needed to find first something in the body language and the um, in, in the gestures of the horses where we can give a guideline that everybody can follow, which is evidence-based and science-based and you don't have an argument about it. So that was really interesting. So, you, so long story, short, you need a little bit of stress in order to learn, but you should not overdo it that you see gestures like tight muscles, head up high, sweating, nervousness, um, licking and chewing, lowering the head all the time. And that's like where you should tap an eye on like, oh, is this still healthy or not? <laughs> so, um, when you get to those points, is the best idea to kind of stop or is the best idea to kind of reassess? Oh, great question. I love that. You're a horse person, obviously, and can immediately um, see the situation in front of you. And that is perfect because, you know, it's like when you surprise the horse or you are surprised, you you put it, let's say it's a horse which is scared, had bad experiences loading in a trailer. And now you start the, your training session and you start loading the horse. And it's a little stressed. It's a little nervous. It's maybe like you could also, if you hear like oh, snort, 
too much stress. So you would like, let's say you're surprised by the response of the horse when you showed him the stimulus, which is causing the fear or the stress. Let's say that's now the trailer, but it's still good on the ramp. It's a little tight in muscle, but you keep on going, you keep on going. And then you're in the trailer and it sees the wall and it's like, oh my God, and everything. And it's running out of the trailer, shooting backwards and it goes crazy. And then you were surprised. Then you go like, oh my God, I didn't know. This is so much stress for this horse. And now you would stop. You would go back to the stable, let's say, then you will see the licking and chewing because now the sympathetic, the, um, uh, sympathetic system and the parasympathetic system is changing. And now it would like, breathe again and it would produce saliva and it would show you the licking and showing then you know like oh my god this was so much stress so then that's okay let it go and be smart and then create a training plan and knowing that this stimulus let's say facing the wall maybe you know it was tied up in a trailer and flipped over backwards or something and when it sees a wall right in front of his face that's the stimulus which just makes him freaking out then you have to build a smarter training plan on make it softer for him to be able to learn yes that happened but it's not going to happen again and i will like you know you can teach it maybe in an, another environment against a wall or something which is safer whatever we can get into this but um this is like really important that this is the point where you can say like it's okay i stopped the session i have to go back to zero and think smart how I I know now the stimulus that is causing this fear and then I'm going to be smarter in my training session to present it in a softer way that I'm not causing that much stress hormones um so I am a um an English teacher in my other life as well and I was thinking about this and it kind of fits and let me know if I have it um But if you have a student that is elbow deep in shame, obviously shame horses don't experience shame, all right? Um, But uh, if they're elbow deep in shame and fear, you cannot get that response. But you still have to look for the spot that's like just uncomfortable, but they still feel like you're going to catch them if they fall. Is that kind of similar? Yeah, that's kind of cool. And you know, that's a good picture because like, and and in order to experience that you will catch them when they fall, they need to have that experience before that you do it. They need to have evidence. That's why we call it evidence-based equine communication. It's not only that we found evidence for how to train the horse. It's also we give the horse evidence that it can trust that we're going to be there and we will like we will catch them when they fall and therefore you have to approach like you have to have the event happening one time that's okay so let's say the the child would tell you i'm able to ride a bicycle and you think it can ride a bicycle, but now you're still there. You're the wing man. You're just like kind of there. You first, as a good teacher, will check. Is it really cap- 
people to do this. And then you're kind of there. And if it would fall, you would catch him and help and say like, oh, okay, you know what? I find a good exercise. We can, you're great in riding the bicycle, but maybe here's a little exercise we can do together to get you even better. And if they experience this one, when you train them, that's so awesome because they will give you everything. But if you would go and say and disappoint them, like the accident happens and you would even now um, stress them even more or whip them or yell at them or anything, then they will never like to be on that bicycle in your presence again. They will try everything they can to avoid it and be stressed already from the get-go before they even get into the classroom with you as a teacher, you know? Exactly. You have to just read the horse and we give in that new book people ethograms about the body language so where they they can see um when this moment happens that they that they feel stress how did you um come up with creating the ethograms they are fascinating yeah, they're, they're the best. I love them so much. It's like so logic. You know, we have no arguments with horsemen anymore at all because it's like fact-based. It's like, that's what it is, you know. And the ethograms helped us because actually the discussion in the beginning we were, and then we saw, oh, wow, every time they rear, they also do this, this, this. They All of them do this. So, and I had a great partner. It's um, the biggest stud in the world. We, um, Paul Schockermüller is a very famous um, a German warm blood breeder. He was a hunter jumper, jumper, Olympic games and stuff and back in the days. But now he's the biggest breeder. So he has 4,000 horses. So we had 800 folds every year. And for six years, I could use the whole stud for my studies and train all these horses. Like we're the only ones in the world who ever had access to so many horses. And now it's like so amazing because you know what? It's so safe because you're not working um, on like my horse is refusing to jump water. My horse is refusing the saddle. My horse is bucking. My horse is rearing. All that problem horse stuff, which is out there, unnecessary, totally unnecessary. A horse would never go there unless you push it into this situation to go there. And now we teach people to see when the horse is thinking about rearing or bucking or whatever. And it's so far ahead readable that this is without stress hormones in the body so that you can still teach the horse that it's unnecessary to do it. Just get familiar with that stimulus. And then we show you, you don't have to fear it. You don't have to fight it and you don't have to run away from it. And that's so efficient. How did you record the data? Did you like photograph it? Was it using were you monitoring heart rates? Like, how did you record the body language? Like, what did you do to get that on the page? Everything. It was like so crazy because we didn't know what we we're going to find. You know, it's why it was like we were tapping in the dark. We were talking like a blind about color. It was like we had no idea if we ever will find a system. And then it was so amazing when it was there. So, um, very much in the beginning, it was more the very, very first thesis I made about this was more looking into horse whispering um, because 
there were so many voices saying, like, it's stressing the horse, the licking and chewing, the dropping, the lowering the head, the making the circles smaller and blah, blah, blah. This is all like stressful, it's psychological stress. So that's all like a combination. It's like how, how much is the horse holding the breath? How tight are the muscles and stuff? So that's kind of a, was a little tricky. And I went with the University of Zurich. That was so exciting. We put horses on a treadmill. And we trained them before. And then we presented certain stimuli. And you know, we could take blood for the adrenaline while they are exercising right then and there in front of us. Ooh. Yeah, they could, like, <laughs> would monitor yeah. the blood and the stress hormones in the blood right there. And the same time, we would have people taking the saliva in the moment while they are there. So we could find cortisol very fast, which was both our stress hormones. And we could have a a girth to see the pulse rate. We could have the horse in walk and standing and trot and canter, fast canter. We could even like be on the horse and whip it and see like what's what's going to happen or, you know, like certain things where, where we would see like, is this changing anything? Or the and, and we also would take the breath. Like we could, we would have a little like tube and we could see um, if, if they're breathing, how they're breathing, if there are stress even in the oxygen and stuff like it. It was so exciting. I mean, and then we needed to have like several horses and it was the greatest was when we did something with a horse and we would be excited about it and think like, oh my God, that's great result. So let's see what the second one is doing because you only know after the sixth or seventh or eighth if you really are on something. And if the second would do the same thing, we would already have a party and go excited that we like, oh my God, we find something. And the third would be the same and the third, fifth. And then we could start to do, to develop something. But this was all like finding little results and it wasn't at that point of time that we would have a methodology. That was a whole different party. That came way later. But in the beginning, we needed to have a ton of results in order to be able to develop an evidence-based training methodology. And let's say your horse wouldn't stop bucking that way. Then that's not the right way. Then you have to and catch it early. And then you might want to look for more knowledge. Why not? And then we can like confirm, we can confirm um, if it's the right way or if it's not, if you can make it better or not. Certain things in horse whispering are great in a natural horsemanship, but certain things don't work for certain horses. And if you own a horse, I would never recommend to take a chance, even when it's only 10%, that it doesn't work or your horse becomes worse or become like you break the psychological pattern. You break them by um, being violent with them, even when it's not violent from the human perspective. But we can tell you the horse's point of view. And that's why the book is named The Horse's Point of View, because we can tell you, no, this is not so good. And it's not working for your horse. And, um, and the same for dressage jumping and everything. You know, it's mainly focused on, I want to, with the help of, let's say, natural horsemanship, teach my horse to do this and that. That's where you want to maybe come to us and give yourself like some knowledge about like, if you can do this with this way, or if you should maybe take another approach. So what we, we, what we literally did is we looked into everything, 
ever human invented since the 1500s how to train horses. And there are four major ways, or th- we are the fourth, but it was, the first was just like, we, we use whips and spurs and make the horse submissive. That was more back 1500s, 1800s. All these, the literature shows clearly, they really gave recommendations how to do it, how to whip, how to use consequences and everything. They had no idea how learning theories work. They were invented 1905. They started with that and science and stuff. But before that, that was no knowledge. Just make it to be your little slave. So, but we carried a lot out of this over centuries. The next big episode, which they had was, um, was the clicker training. So that was invented like 1905 when they started with like, um, like positive and negative reinforcement and stuff and clicker training from classical conditioning coming from Pavlov who made these, um, these tests with the dog, with the saliva production and stuff. And so people carried this over from a predator, the dog, towards the horse. And um, the next, the third episode, with like, let's say, all these people who designed around the Horse Whisperer movie, Natural Horsemanship, um, Horse Whispering. So they said, we're going to train horses um, based on how they communicate with one another. So we look at the wild, we see how a mother is educating the foal, and we take this over and train that way. So we, so she's using sending in circles when the foal is unacceptable, or a stallion would send away another sign. So we just adopt this, and we just do the same thing. We put them into a round pen, and then we just chase them in circles until they show themselves being submissive. But in all of those, and that's it, there's nothing more out there, which is so interesting because since 1500, people literally do the same thing with horses. And that's what we looked into and said, like, okay, let's look into all these three big episodes and see what works and what does not work. And from that, we only keep good stuff and design an evidence-based training methodology which the horse understands. And in my book, in very much in the beginning, I, I've, I've described something which is like, I think the really big deal about this is in all these episodes back from the 1500s, people came up only with six different ways how to punish a behavior of a horse and only four different ways how to reward a behavior. That's nothing. I mean, I can reward you with the one million things. If you ask me, Andrea, how can I reward reward you? I can give you a list, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, right here and there. <laughs> yeah. It's not going to be four things. It's going to be multiple. And the horse has the same desire and certain things. Mm-hmm. So that was where we were like, oh my god, does horse whispering work? Some things do, some things don't. Um. And we just kept what works and we threw out what's not working. And that is really interesting. It's a really new, we call it, or in Europe, but they call it, oftentimes journalists call it, it's the revolution of horse training because we went back from the 1500s to today, kept the good stuff and and kept going with it. And that defined a methodology which which always works 100% for your horse, regardless what you want to teach him. 
my mind is blown right now about rewards. Tell me more about types of rewards. Like obviously like horses are as varied as people. So like, it's not, we're not going to cover all of them, but like, give me some examples like of those. Yeah, well, so actually well, how people do it or did it in the past or still do it, um, it's like, you know, they they give food as a reward. They pet them. They use um, the voice to say good boy. And they release pressure. And that's it. Mm-hmm. The problem is... Almost all of those four rewards coming from a human brain is not understandable from the horse as a reward. I mean, how sad is this? We teach them, everything we ask them to do is not coming from their DNA. They don't wake up in the morning and and, and dream about like, oh, I hope I can jump these jumps today again. If you leave them alone and put them into that that, um, arena, they will just roll or hang out. They will not go and say like, oh, I'm going to perform. So you have to motivate them to do all this. From the evolutionary standpoint, it never really helped the horse to do those things. And what helped them was like, become, be quiet, be social, eat, sleep. That's it. Reproduce. But, um, you know, so that was one thing from the learning theories. When you reward, you need to make sure that the horse gives already the right response. So let's say I stop or, and I want the horse to stop too, without me pulling on the halter or rein or whatever to just stop. When I stop, it's just an easy task to make a picture. And it does it right. An easy path has to make a picture, not an easy task to like master. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's right. But when you use EBC, it's super simple, actually. But, okay, let's say now it stops. You want to tell the horse, yeah, that's the right thing to do. You could either now use these four methods they had out there. It's not a method, but the ways, whatever. You would go and say, oh, good boy. I mean, ask yourself, if this horse dreamt all night in its stall, that it can't wait that you come around the corner, lead him around the pasture or whatever, or even away from the pasture, and then it stops. They dreamt all night. Hopefully, you say, good boy. Honestly, it doesn't give nothing about, like, good boy. It's not important for him. It maybe even doesn't understand. Now, okay, petting them. He didn't wake up in the morning like thinking, oh, hopefully she comes around and I do something I don't want to do. And then I do it. And then hopefully she just pats me like, and most people pet this way. I mean, like, good boy. Yeah. It's like they have such sensitive skin. I mean, maybe a very soft, light, like, oh, I love you too. You know, with your fingertips or something that maybe could work if it really wants this in this moment. Um, but, and it's not waiting for food because if you give him a carrot in that moment or some treat, usually you only, every time we set this right from the get-go when we started talking, when you bring the horse into a situation that you only use rewards when you teach them something, you want them to learn something. That means you bring them out of, your com- of their comfort zone where you want to watch that stress level. As soon as the horse has even just a tiny little bit of stress, even the positive stress, the system will shut down and not take food. 
because horses are not like a predator. They don't have saliva production when they see a carrot. They only have saliva production for digestion reason, different than a dog. If you put a piece of ham in front of a nose of a little Jack Russell, he would do everything he can to get that piece of ham and his saliva is dripping. So that's like not what a horse is doing. So the horse will not wait for food. So that's off your list when you teach them something. And release of pressure, then there was only a big question, okay, which kind of pressure did you put on in the beginning? I mean, to release it. So it's, you already can see how inefficient our way is to like do this. Like, and now you come up with a question, yeah, but how do I reward? So let's say I design this situation. You have a horse with the, their friends on the pasture. You take the horse and you take it and you want to teach him going away from the herd with you, leading around whatever your property and you stop and it should stop. So then it has, you will read, we teach you, we call it the instinctive, instinctive rewards, instinctive reinforcers. We teach people how to learn to see what the horse really wants in that moment from his point of view, not from your point of view. Good boy is your point of view. Good boy is not the horse's point of view. But with the desire it now has would be like when I lead him away from the herd and he feels a little uncomfortable because he doesn't know what to do without his herd and that why do we do this it's not in my dna evolution didn't tell me it was ever an advantage for our um development and survival as a species that i walked away from my herd that's like not making sense so the biggest thing he wants for doing something right is come back to the herd so we teach people, that's just one example, and it's, it's, it's very complicated, and that's why you need a teacher to, an instructor to learn it, because it's very complicated to transform, this now is totally making sense, to transform this into other situations. Yeah, but what do I, what do, I do when I'm now riding in the arena, and I'm teaching him chain, changing leads? Of course, then the, he does not want to be with his herd. So that's not no regard in that specific moment, but we can't help you to, it's too complicated for one interview, but um, how to read what it really wants. So we take the instinctive demands of the horse, what the hormones is telling the horse to do, um, to just like give them that in that moment so they understand, oh, when I did this, this was great. I got what was on my wish list in that moment. And so we have more than 200 different rewards. It's amazing. Wow. So it's kind of um, like each horse is a little bit more like, you know, a significant other or a best buddy. Right. I'm not going to buy the same gift card for the best buddy as I'm going to buy for my significant other. Bam. Here you got it. You draw, that's a great picture. Exactly. <laughs> you need to find what the gift card. Yeah. You cannot go to buy a gift card from some for coffee when this person hates coffee and you just give coffee gift card. They will go like, I don't want to see her. I get all this freaking coffee. I hate her. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like that, that one friend who always like buys you that one thing and you're like, I know you love me. And this is just, this isn't, this isn't the candle I ordered. Um, <laughs> You don't want to be that friend for your horse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's a big question. And the same thing is, how do I punish? 
Oh, interesting chapter. That's the whole revolution we bring on here into the game plan. It's amazing. We almost do not use punishment. It doesn't work. We looked into punishment and it's it was shocking. Shocking. Uh, can yeah. you give a definition of what punishment is before you tell us more about yeah, punishment? Yeah, let's say some, it always de- is defined a little bit by the person who's using it. You cannot generally say a whip or a spur is a punishment tool because um, if you train properly, then it might be a signal mm-hmm. right, to like mm-hmm. something. Yeah. And so yeah. it's not against certain tools. But no. if you use the whip as a punishment, let's say the horse is in a walk, you're riding. Now, you want the horse to, when you tighten up your muscles in your leg, you want the horse, or you kick it a little bit, with or without the spur, doesn't doesn't matter. Um, And the desired response of the horse should be to start trotting. And now the horse does not start trotting. And you use the whip in order to get the trot, then you need to take care. You cannot whip as a punishment because if you need to understand punishment from the learning theories always means that the desired response will be reduced. The horse does not do anymore what you ask him what it's doing. Only then it's punishment. So let's say I bring this to a child. You tell them, don't touch this hot stove. And you say, don't touch the hot stove. When they touch it and it's hot and they burn their fingers, that's a punishment. They will not touch it again or be very careful about it. And that's the whole definition of a punishment. You punish your kid whatever, let's say you would even spank it or whatever, you know, then a punishment has to be something really strong. It's not a little threat. It must be something really strong, immediate presence in full power. Actually, the only thing with horses where you can really use punishment, like I want a desire to decrease, would be an electrical fence, for example. They run into, we say, don't touch the fence. They touch the fence, they get a really hard shock, electrical shock, and they go like, oh, shit, I never go close to that fence anymore. That was not good. Yeah, I've had that That, experience myself. I don't want to touch it again either. And then it's punishment. Only then, if you increase a response, that's going to work with positive and negative reinforcement. Okay, different story. Stay with punishment. We stay with the horse with the legs with the not trotting. Okay, that's the picture. So we understand even if I would whip like crazy, but it's never strong enough a whip to really do punishment. I mean, that would be like it's bleeding. And, you know, the problem would be you have to like whip, take the whip up again, whip again, whip, take it away, whip again. So every so you you are actually... Um, you you are um, taking the stimulus with which you want to punish always away in order to present it. And again, that's not working. Punishment then does not work. It wouldn't work like I touch the fence to get a shock a little bit and then a little bit and then a little bit not working. Okay, so we understand it's not working as a punishment tool. It's not strong enough. 
And you have to, in order to present it, take it away, even when the desired response was not given. You have to take it away in order to present it again. Okay, so, and if I would use this now in walk, now I'm sitting on my horse walking, using my leg and want to teach it to start trotting. Okay, <clears throat> now I can also not use the whip because if now in walk, I would use it as a punishment tool, the walk would decrease. Because I'm actually, from my perspective, thinking trot. But from the horse's point of view, it is walking. So we learn in evidence-based equine communication to really look at the facts without any interpretation. No, it's walking. And for a walk, you are whipping. Huh, does this make sense? How does this make sense? So what the fact is, when it now starts trotting, that you are actually training the horse as that to understand the whip as a signal for trotting. Because if it starts trotting, you use it a little bit, not as punishment, just as a signal. Now it starts trotting. You, you go, oh, great. And you take the whip away. You don't use it. And now you're trotting. Now think how many people are using the whip, but they do not really want the horse to understand the whip as the signal. They want the horse to start trotting on their leg. Mm -hmm. It's not happening. They ride with whips for 100 years and it's still not happening. And then if, if you don't even get your horse understanding your leg as the signal, and then it's going to be very hard to compete Olympic Games in dressage. Because if this is the minimum thing they give you, how do you want to continue? Use it for everything, like from trot to canter. Then you need to use it for leading changes or whatever. So, And, and when you're really riding into the games or into a competition or into a show, you cannot use the whip as the signal while you're competing. So you need to teach the horse the like to understand or the change of um, you know, your weight or whatever it is. And so that's, that's why we have to clearly look at the evidence if something is working or not working. And if we want something different, yeah, they have to learn how to do it. And then we can teach you how to do this with, let's say, negative reinforcement, because you actually want that not the walk will decrease. You want that the walk is increasing, but you cannot use positive reinforcement as a reward because it's not trotting yet. And so there's only one tool you have to use the negative reinforcement then, and that's a little more complicated, but that's how it works. You know, that's like the bigger picture. All right. I got a couple more, a couple more. Um, so uh, what advice do you have about consistency? Can you tell me what consistency is and why it's important? Yeah, it's so important. Yeah. Consistency is like the horse has not much capable. It's very smart. I think the horse is one of the most underestimated species on earth. They are so smart. People just think they are stupid sometimes or not so smart because they don't know how to communicate with them or how to teach them. But they they are able to understand the smallest little signal. You just need to do it right. And um, so in order to understand, they have one little thing. They cannot think too strategic. So. They have difficulties understanding the purpose behind something. Let's say my purpose is if you know trot or do the 
like changing leads or whatever, that's going to be an advantage for us because then we win the Olympic Games and then I can buy better food for you. No, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> They cannot just see this, you know, the strategic thing behind, like, why are we loading into a trailer? Yeah, because you're going to go with me on this great ride and this great mountain and this great field or whatever, you know, where we're going to go to the bed. And then you will feel better because we will give you mats and we have to check your tummy. You, you're sick or not feeling well. When you load in the trailer, you're going to feel better. That's not their game plan. So that's a little bit difficult. So in our, that's why, why this being strict, clear, consistent with like, this is the signal. I put my leg here. This is the signal for trotting. Don't take the leg away when it's still in a walk. It's You have to be consistent. You can choose another signal because they can learn anything. You can use like whatever you want, um, cheesecake, and they will learn to start trotting when you say cheesecake. I mean, they have the capability, but you have to say it and do it consistent. If you change too much, if, if it's slightly different, they have a, they're smart. They will figure it out. But if it's a bigger meaning behind, oh, today she is like blah, 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 and then blah, blah, that's like not working. And, and, and it helps them when you are consistent to understand what you want them to do. And you, as a writer or as, a, as an owner of a horse, you can decide whatever you want them to do. You can teach them anything when they are capable physically and emotionally to do it, then you can teach them anything. And I think we should not blame anybody on using the horse for uh, like, you know, whatever they want to use them for, they can use them for. It's not jumping is better than dressage or dressage worse than whatever and pleasure riding better than blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. You just need to do it in a proper way and be consistent. Explain the horse what it has to do for you. And then it's going to be rewarded until the end of his life and because it does the job. I think my last two questions is the biggest mistake you see and the biggest piece of advice you can give. Misinterpretation of body language. That's the biggest mistake. People come from their perspective and, and they have to learn to take the horse's point of view. And that's going to help people so much. It's amazing. I cover it in the book. If people want to learn it, they should sign up for a little seminar or something to get a little guidance. It's not too easy. It's smart. You have to think. Um, and yeah, that's the biggest mistake. People come from their perspective looking at the horse and, and, and don't know how to take the horse's point of view. And our evidence will help them to find the right um, point of view. And the best piece of advice is um, always to um, practice self-awareness. What did I do that caused the horse to do this? It is never the horse just doing something. The horse doesn't see ghosts or doesn't go and do something on purpose against you. It's also not tricking you. It's not doing any of this. If something happens, you don't want my advice is train yourself in self-reflection. Look at what evidence, what, present, what was presented to the horse. Um, what did it do? What was the stimulus causing that behavior? How can I change it for the next time? That's my biggest advice. Oh, that's so fabulous. Uh, 
Again, Andrea Kutch and her amazing book, From the Horse's Point of View. Make sure you pick up a copy. Make sure you check out her website. It's been such an utter pleasure having you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I loved it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of HN Reads. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and check out Horse Network for more equestrian content. We'll bring you a new episode soon. But in the meantime, happy reading. Thank you.